the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Good morning, Cleveland. This is Pete Kirst now at the top of the hour, substituting for Bob France on the Bob France Authority. Bob's okay. No issues with respect to coronavirus. I'm simply sitting in for him today. He'll be back tomorrow. The best radio talk show host in the country. I will give a slight nod to Rush only because the president did in terms of issuing the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Now, at uh, the bottom, or at least in the other hour, the end of the other hour, we had Christian Adams talking about election integrity. And as I indicated, Christian fights a somewhat lonely, lonely battle against the forces arrayed on the left, which are massive forces in terms of preserving election integrity. In a similar vein, our next guest, Roger Clegg, has been manning the ramparts, possibly fighting an even larger phalanx of leftists with respect to all manner of things related to race and discrimination. Roger, again, he's been a guest on this show several times. He is a former Justice Department official under Ronald Reagan. He's the longtime head of the Center for Equal Opportunity. And even though I am the longest-serving member on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, whenever I have questions related to civil rights and the law pertaining thereto, I go to our next guest, Roger Clegg. Roger, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Pete, and I have to say that it's uh, it's a tough act to follow coming after Christian Adams, um, but uh, I'll do my best. All right, we we have no doubt that uh, you'll do just great because you are the font of all knowledge when it comes to this. I joke with Roger about these things, but it is true. Um, I know a little bit about these matters, having been studying them for about forty years. But uh, Roger is the repository of everything. So you got I'm I'm holding you to a higher standard here, Roger. What we're going to talk <laughs> about today is um, 
the ongoing attempt on the part of the left to engage in overt racial discrimination. The only person that I know in a judicial capacity, at least at an elevated capacity, who calls it racial discrimination, an unvarnished description of what actually is going on, is Justice Clarence Thomas. Others use euphemisms such as racial preferences or affirmative action. Racial preferences gets closer to it, but affirmative action seems kind of benign. It's something that we want to do. It seems like leveling the playing field. But, uh, Roger, correct me if I'm wrong. When we talk about racial preferences in contracting, public contracting, and more importantly, or at least more prevalently, uh, student admissions and other types of benefits at the university level, um, we are, I mean, this is something that has been going on for quite some time. It is profound, and it's not just a simple thumb on the scale, as the court said in, I believe it was Gruder or Graz. It's pretty much an anvil on the scale in the admissions process. Um, That's exactly right. And one of the things that my organization has done over the years is use the uh, freedom of information laws to get admissions data and then crunch the numbers to show just how heavily race and ethnicity are used in university admissions. And we have found time after time after time that, as you say, it's, it's not a tiebreaker. It's, it's the whole game. Uh, it makes an enormous difference. And we're talking about, for example, um, the difference between having a, uh, a 9 out of 10 chance versus a 1 out of 10 chance. Know, of getting into a school, depending on uh, what your skin color is or what country your ancestors came from. So, yeah, that's, uh, it's important that we strip away the euphemisms here. Um, people are being treated differently because of skin color or because of national origin. Um, and you can, you can call it whatever you like, but that's discrimination. And, Roger, our friends on the left, uh, to the extent we have any, um, they maintain that, well, look, because of the legacy of discrimination, uh, this is something that, uh, we, you know, we want, the, the new buzzword is diversity. It's another one of these gauzy phrases that really covers up what's actually going on. But the idea is that, well, we're helping the underprivileged or those who have, uh, faced a legacy of discrimination. That, that's the overt rationale. But as if this is a, you know, a slight uh, benefit to the uh, disadvantaged in our society, and it actually helps them. Is there a benefit to those who receive affirmative action? And are there detriments that those who receive racial preferences also face? Well, there are uh, so many problems with the arguments that the, that the left uses, that it's, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, you're right that the only argument that anybody really uh, believes uh, in, their, in their hearts is this sort of vague argument that, well, uh, America has a long history of, of racial discrimination, uh, and so we have to make up for it in some way. Now, you know, the first answer to that is that that argument uh, has been rejected by the Supreme Court. So uh, to the extent that uh, schools engage in racial preferences, and a whole lot of them do, uh, no school currently do not, uh, relies on that rationale. So that's the first point. 
Second point is that, yeah, the rationale that they do use is uh, this diversity rationale, which is very murky. But what it boils down to is that uh, white kids and Asian kids are going to learn better, going to learn something that they could not otherwise possibly have learned had there not been these uh, random observations made in classrooms and in, in uh, dorm session, bull sessions by students who happen to be Latino or African-American. Now, you know, to say that that justifies something as ugly as racial discrimination uh, is, I think, just, just crazy. If the shoe were on the other foot, you know, nobody would accept it. Fourth, a, a third problem is that even if you accept this uh, remedial, you know, rationale that we're doing this to make up for past discrimination, well, okay, you know, maybe that would work, uh, you know, would have worked at least 50 years ago if we were talking about giving um, blacks a, a preference over whites. But now, um, more and more, we're giving, for example, uh, Latinos a benefit of uh, 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 a preference over Asian Americans. So, you know, what is the history of Asian Americans discriminating, you know, against Latinos? It, it, it's, uh, you know, there is no such history. And then finally, and in some respects, you know, the most important point is that um, these preferences are not only, I mean, this discrimination uh, or preference is not only uh, bad for the people who get discriminated against, that is, in most instances in higher education, uh, Asian Americans and, and whites, it turns out that it's not good uh, for African Americans and Latinos either because of this mismatch problem. That is, you know, you, if you systematically are admitting students to schools where their academic qualifications are significantly below, uh, the academic qualifications of everyone else, guess what? Those students are not going to do as well. They're going to struggle. Uh, they're going to flunk out, uh, or drop out or, you know, have to switch majors. Um, you know, all kinds of, of, of bad things happen. And so it turns out that the, this approach is not good for anybody. Right, and uh, our mutual friend Rick Sander, Professor Rick Sander, has crunched the numbers on this and shown that the mismatch effect of which you speak is not some kind of ancillary effect. It's a profound effect in some quarters, to some schools, a black student admitted pursuant to affirmative action is up to four times more likely, and in some cases more than that, to flunk out over a similarly situated white or Asian comparative. Uh, that's a person who's going to school and possibly spending money and resources and precious time pursuing an education under false pretenses and then having to drop out. And we had testimony at the Civil Rights Commission about individuals uh, 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 black individuals, it was almost like a truth in advertising case where they were saying these colleges told us everything was going to be hunky-dory. We go there and find out that we are not prepared to compete at this level and we spend wasted resources and time on a futile endeavor trying to uh, compete at an institution for which we are poorly prepared and qualified. Um, Roger, you know, the... Um, Harvard University, arguably, and I would dispute this, the flagship premier university in the country, 
Uh, for those of us who went to other Ivy League schools or other schools, we vigorously dispute that. But they've got this reputation. And they're currently immersed in a lawsuit. At least they were, and now it's on appeal. Can you tell us a little bit about that lawsuit? Sure. Um, it's a very important case. Um, and it's brought by um, uh, a, uh, an organization that's, that's representing um, uh, Asian-American students uh, who have been uh, discriminated against by Harvard in, in undergraduate admissions. Uh, it was brought, brought you know, many years ago. It's had a long history. Uh, discovery in the case was delayed by while well, one Supreme Court case was ongoing, um, and you know, then it, it started up again, and uh, of course the discovery process took a long time, and the, the, the district judge took a long time to write an opinion, but um, uh, finally, the uh, opinion you know, came down, and it uh, said it recognized that yes, Harvard is treating students differently because of race. Um, you know, there are, it recognized that there are some uh, ugly and unexplained aspects of, of, of that discrimination. But nonetheless, it, it uh, the bottom line was that it uh, upheld. Uh, the use of Harvard's use of, of race in in admissions, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you know, for example, um, you know, there was this uh, very suspicious uh, uh, phenomenon of you know, all of a sudden, uh, after the uh, percentage of Asian Americans being admitted got to about you know twenty percent, it seemed to, to to hit a ceiling, you know, also known as a quota. Uh, a few years ago, uh, and it's never really gotten above that. You know, Roger, hold that thought, that. if you will. We'll revisit it after the break. We're talking to Roger Clegg, Center for Equal Opportunity, on the Bob France Authority. We'll be back in a minute. Any day with Jimi Hendrix is a great day, and it's also a great day because we've got Roger Clegg, also known as Obi-Wan Kenobi in Washington, D.C., because he knows all things related to civil rights. He's of the Center for Equal Opportunity. We were talking about Students for Fair Admissions against Harvard, which is a suit brought by Asian Americans against Harvard because they're being discriminated against. It's that forthright. Uh, and, Roger, you were talking about what appeared to be evidence adduced during the course of that lawsuit that suggested that Harvard had, for lack of a better word, a quota similar to that applied to Jewish students back in the you know 1950s and 60s at Ivy League universities against Asian students. Can complete your thought there. Well, that's exactly right. And um, the uh, plaintiffs, the Asian Americans uh, in this uh, lawsuit. Uh, have uh, have emphasized the fact that this does look indeed a, a lot like the discrimination that Jewish Americans uh, suffered at at Harvard. One of the uh, uh, things that was uh, uncovered, one of the facts that was uncovered uh, during the course of the litigation, is that uh, Asian American applicants always came to do much poorer on what was the personality uh, 
rating in the uh, uh, in, in the admissions uh, process. Uh, they do great SAT scores, great uh, grades, uh, uh, plenty of extracurricular activities, top teacher recommendations. But they always seem to get, uh, you know, tripped up, you know, according to Harvard, by uh, just just scoring, you know, remarkably, you know, uh, low on the on the on the personal ratings. So anyway, um, there's not much doubt that there's not any doubt really that uh, uh, Asian Americans are being discriminated against by Harvard. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, district judge upheld it. Uh, it's now on appeal to the First Circuit. Eventually, this is going to go to the Supreme Court. And, you know, the fundamental problem, Pete, as you know, is that the Supreme Court itself has uh, allowed this uh, diversity justification uh, to be used to, uh, to, to rationalize discrimination in university admissions. And here's hoping that when the case gets back up to the Supreme Court in in another year or two, that the the uh, the new improved Supreme Court will reject this diversity rationale and say that no, you can't treat uh, students differently because of their skin color or what country their national origin uh, or, or or national origin, and um, require that the students all be treated uh, as uh, as equally without regard to the skin color. Roger, we've got about a minute yeah. and a half left. Could you tell our, our listeners, if it gets to the Supreme Court, what is the court precedent to which the Supreme Court will look to adjudicate this case, and how do you think, what, what's your best guess as to the outcome? Well, the basic idea, or the basic structure that the Supreme Court uses in this area uh, is that, if, you know, look, if you... Uh, are treating people differently on the basis of skin color, uh, then uh, you've got to have a, a compelling interest for that discrimination, and you have to have no other way of, of achieving that compelling interest except through their use of race. And, you know, you can think of some hypothetical situations where it might be okay uh, to, to treat people differently because of race. I mean, for example... One example the court has used is that if you just had a, a prison race riot uh, and you decide as the warden that you're going to separate the white prisoners from the black prisoners for some period of time, you know, that would that would make sense. That would be OK. Um, but it's got to be a really, really good reason. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has uh, recognized in 2003 in the the uh uh, Ruder versus uh, University of Michigan case that, uh, that this this uh, touchy-feely social science gobbledygook that we talked about before, this diversity justification, was compelling. And so what I'm hoping will happen what, and what I expect will happen uh, is that five justices uh, at least on the Supreme Court will revisit that 2003 decision and will overturn it. And Roger. No. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're coming up against a hard break. We're talking to Roger Clegg of the Center for Luke Opportunity. These guys are at the forefront, tip of the spear, with when it comes to matters of non-discrimination. We're privileged to have them on board. Thanks very much, Roger. When we come back, we'll be talking to Christiana Hokum of Alliance Defending Freedom. 
regarding transgender athletes. Pete Kirsten now sitting for Bob France on the Bob France Authority. Good morning, Ohio. This is Pete Kersnow substituting for the great Bob France on the Bob France Authority. Bob's just taking a short break, nothing to do with coronavirus. At some point, I suppose, we'll get back to talking about coronavirus, but we're privileged this morning to talk with Christiana Holcomb, counsel for our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. Our listeners are well familiar with them uh, locally. Alliance Defending Freedom was the tip of the spear in defending the Lyceum, or actually prosecuting a case on behalf of Lyceum, the great school in South Euclid, Christian school in South Euclid, when faced by an ordinance uh, that was uh, passed by the city of South Euclid. But as you know, and in my previous appearances, I've told you that at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, on which I sit, we have addressed this issue more frequently, and that is the whole host of issues raised by the issue of transgenders, whether it be religious freedom, whether it be non-discrimination issues, and nobody better to talk to us about that than Christiana Holcomb, who has brought a lawsuit on behalf of certain female athletes related to their participation in track and field against transgender athletes. Christiana, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. Some of our favorite folks are from the Alliance Defending Freedom doing just great work there. So, Christiana, as I've just indicated in the intro, you filed a lawsuit, and it's not the the, the first thing that has been done, but you filed a lawsuit, and I think it was against the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, and there are probably some other defendants, uh, related to your clients who were track athletes at a high school level, who were competing against biological males. Tell us a little bit about the situation that gave rise to that lawsuit and some of the law related to it. Sure. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom has the privilege of representing three young female athletes, uh, Selena, Chelsea, and Alana, all three of whom are very elite track and field athletes in the state of Connecticut. But since 2017, they have not had the opportunity to compete on a level playing field because they have all three been forced to compete against biological males in their track and field events. As you mentioned, the Connecticut Athletic Association passed a policy that now allows males who just identify as girls to compete in and to dominate girls' sports in the state of Connecticut, which has had the result of two males now taking 15 different state championship titles that once belonged to nine different Connecticut girls. So it's really having a dramatic impact on sports in Connecticut. Now, what is the legal basis for the lawsuit? You've got, uh, I mean, there are are a host of potential legal theories. You've got, you know, non-discrimination statutes. You've got Title IX. You've got a whole host of things. How did you bring the law school? How is it postured? Sure. We brought it on the basis of a federal law called Title IX. Title IX was passed nearly 50 years ago and was intended to both provide women 
with educational opportunities, but also equal athletic opportunities. And unfortunately, here we are less than a half century later, and all of those advances for women are really being undone in light of the fact that you now have biological males coming in and dominating women's sports, taking girls' state championship titles, taking their medals, taking their podium spots, and frankly, interfering with their ability to compete in front of college coaches and earn those college scholarships. I mean, um, for many of us out here, we look at this and it seems nonsensical and also seems like a no-brainer as to how this should be decided. Um, what kind of relief are you asking for? Well, what we're asking for in the Connecticut lawsuit is simply a return to fairness for women's sports, fairness for young female athletes. So we're asking the court to fulfill the promise of Title IX and to protect the female athletics category such that young women like my clients, Selena, Chelsea, and Alana, are only competing against other biological girls. That's the only fair solution, and it's the only solution that really allows them to compete from a level playing field and experience that thrill of victory and have the opportunity to be champions. So what's the argument of the other side that says that biological males who identify as females, but they've been biological males since birth, I mean, you can't change that because of the trillions of Mm. cells in your body, each one of them has chromosomes and they can't change those chromosomes. They may be able to change their appearance. What is the argument of the other side that contends that they should be allowed, the transgender athletes should be allowed to compete against biological females? Well, what the other side is trying to do is elevate a person's internal sense of gender or their identity over biological reality. But in the context of athletics, biology is really what matters, not not what a person identifies as. And both, both science and common sense tell us that biological males have inherent physical advantages over females. That's the entire reason we have women's sports as a separate category. And look, uh, the data shows us that literally thousands of high school boys and men could beat the world's most elite female track and field athletes on any given day. So if we allow policies like this to proliferate across the country and allow males into women's sports, we're really looking at what could be the end of women's sports as a separate category. Yeah, Christian, I think it was, I saw you and a couple of your clients on the Laura Ingram show and it seemed as if they were denied or, or at least their ability to get college scholarships based on their athletic ability were compromised by the fact that these males obliterated the records and took first and second place uniformly, no matter how hard these splendid athletes trained and what their talent level was like. You're exactly right. Look, I represent some of the most elite female athletes in the state of Connecticut but they are not getting the publicity that they deserve because they're simply referenced by the media as, you know, the the second or third place non-transgender runners. When in reality, they are the fastest female athletes, you know, in their particular championship or in their state. Um, But again, even beyond that, we're looking at a, a situation in which we have males who are impeding the ability of biological females to advance to the next level of competition where they can then compete in front of college coaches and earn the uh, attract the attention of these college coaches and potentially earn scholarships. So this is not just 
simply about the ability to win, although that matters. But these types of policies have negative implications for the future of these young women. Yeah. Well, uh, again, the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, we've had various guests on this show from Alliance Defending Freedom. You're always doing great work. Can you tell our guests how to get in touch with Alliance Defending Freedom? I know a lot of them have been in touch already, but if you could remind us, that would be great. Absolutely. They're welcome to visit adflegal.org, where they can learn both more about who we are and what we do, but also about our cases and our fight to preserve, preserve fairness for women's sports. Christiana Holcomb and the Alliance Defending Freedom, as always, fighting the good fight. Thanks very much, Christiana, and good luck to you and your clients. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we're going to finish out the top of the hour, and we'll talk about anything you want to talk about. Pete Kersenow, sitting in for Bob France on WHK 1420, The Answer. Why don't you Good morning, Cleveland. Pete Kirstenow sitting in for the great Bob France on the Bob France Authority. We've had a number of outstanding guests. Jay Christian Adams talking about voter integrity. Roger Clegg talking about the Harvard case. Christiana Holcomb of ADF talking about the transgender case. Of course, we've interspersed throughout references to coronavirus. You can't escape it. And as you know, my position is be smart, wash your hands, listen to the medical professionals. Don't take any risks that the medical professionals advise against. But at the same time, you're a human being entitled to ask questions as to why this virus appears to be treated differently than other similar viruses. It's just a matter of curiosity. We want all the information there is so we can protect ourselves, comport ourselves properly, and protect ourselves not only from a health perspective, which is the overriding consideration, of course, but also from an economic perspective. And as conservatives, I'm not going to speak for all conservatives, but I can speak for a lot of people that I know, Conservatives like rationality and don't like hysteria a whole lot. We think that we can address issues most effectively without resort to hysteria or overreaction. Overreaction is exactly what it says. You make mistakes when you overreact. We want to react appropriately. So again, be sober, listen to your medical professionals, don't take unnecessary risks, but ask a heck of a lot of questions. We've had a number of great guests, and of course, for those of you who are on hold, we apologize for that, but we had a lot of interesting things to talk about. But we do have TJ uh, next, holding from Cleveland. TJ, how are you today? Pretty good, Peter, and I thought your bumper music is impeccable. <laughs> you know, you, you really would make a good DJ if you ever decided to go that road. But uh, one suggestion with this coronavirus, how about a little bit of the end by the doors? You know, uh, but the reason I called... Let's just, uh, here we get back to bumper music, the Beatles imagine. Let's imagine the Democrats were in power today. Uh, what we would have had was total open borders, uh, health care for everyone, illegal, legal, it doesn't matter. Right now, you would have a plethora of sick people pouring across our border, storming our hospitals, looking for, you know, uh, uh, medical treatment. The epidemic in the United States would have made the Black Plague look like an allergy season, you know, if these people were in power. 
it's pretty scary. And when people go to the polls, they better think about this stuff. Yeah, TJ, you're exactly right. TJ, one of our favorite uh, call-ins. Um, I've been talking about this. I had a post on NRO about this. I may have another one to uh, supplement that one because of what Joe Biden said during the debate. And again, as I said at the outset of the program, I thought, TJ, that Biden was lucid during the debate in terms of at least his cosmetic or superficial presentation. But what he was saying was sheer lunacy for the bases you've just cited. He's talking about essentially open borders and free health care for illegal immigrants. That is going to be a powerful magnet drawing people across the border to get the best health care coverage in the world. And no open borders, no enforcement. And in a time of a pandemic, that is a prescription for outright disaster. Uh, TJ, do you think that people understand that what the Democrats have been proposing, that is open borders, free health care, and all their other policy prescriptions, do you think people understand the ramifications of that? You know, I think, I think kind of deep down inside they do. But I think their hatred for Trump and us just supersedes any common sense that these people on the left might have. I I really believe that. I I think they would rather just see the total destruction of this country just to get rid of us, get rid of Trump, and they they take their power back. You know, one other thing I want to say, you know, Peter, this thing doesn't bother me too much. Because, you know, a Vietnam veteran, I've been in self-quarantine most of my life. I guess the VA calls it bunker complex. So I don't I don't go anywhere anyway. So like I said, this doesn't change my lifestyle too much. Yeah, great point, TJ. And thanks so much for calling in again. Uh, we really appreciate your comments. We have, uh, who we have holding next, I think? We've got somebody else. I'm sorry, we just had a call drop. We've only got a couple of minutes left. But let me just follow up on what TJ was, was saying here. Again, I think we have to be smart about this. Perspective is in order. Listen to medical professionals. Wash your hands. Do not downplay the potential risk to this. I mean, we're being told this. There's a reason why this is going on. But that's my point. I am not getting satisfactory answers as to why we're behaving in a fashion that in my lifetime and in TJ's lifetime, we've never seen the United States of America behave. We're entitled to some answers. Not that we're dismissing what people are telling us. I fully believe everything they're telling us, but they're not giving us the underlying rationale. And we're a free society entitled to such information so we can make rational and prudent decisions. So I keep asking that question. If somebody out there knows the answer, please tell me what it is. Because so far, watching all the various alphabet uh, stations listening to the administration, which is providing great answers, but there is still that missing component, which which is uh, baffling me. Uh, I think we've got time for one more caller at least. We'll go to Nancy from Cleveland. Hi. I got one question for you. I've been hearing about all the countries affected, but Russia's right next to China. How come we're not hearing nothing from them? I'm sure they must have something going on. Yeah, well, we're going to have to talk to our friend Vladimir Putin about that. Um, As we all know, Russia isn't necessarily the most transparent society. I saw that map also, and it was a glaring, glaring uh, omission there. Everybody else has got red all over, you know, intense red uh, circles around it, but Russia is pristine. I think there was only one tiny little red circle somewhere in the central part of Russia. Now, um, one rationale, if you were to believe that Russia is somehow being spared, is that it's such a huge country. They, they practice 
uh, social separation or uh, uh, I can't remember what the current phraseology is, social distancing naturally. But I don't think that accounts for everything. I just simply think we're not, they're, they're, they're not providing us with the information and, that we get and, from others. And the world, uh, um, nations aren't asking them to report their status? Oh, well, you can make all kinds of questions to Vladimir Putin, and he'll decide whether or not he's going to answer at any given time. I also am skeptical about the reporting of China and certain other totalitarian countries. And also, you know, look, let's face it, there are a number of countries that simply don't have the testing regimens so that they can report. In the United States of America and some European countries and in South Korea and and Japan, we've got more sophisticated mechanisms already in place, and still those are somewhat deficient. But if you look at the Southern Hemisphere, for example, hardly any reporting is coming out of there. You haven't heard uh, if uh, the support for uh, Trump is is waning, do you, because of this? No, we haven't had any recent polling data that show the effect of the coronavirus on presidential approval ratings or the tendency to vote. Those will be coming out shortly. But you raise a very good question, because as we know, if something is happening negatively to Trump's polling, we usually hear about it immediately. If it's positive, you, the only sites you're going to be hearing on are the conservative sites, and those are few and far between. But the MSNBC, CNNs, ABC, CS, CBS, so on and so forth, they would be immediately reporting any kind of decline in the approval rating. It's natural that you would have a decline in approval rating in something such as this. But I will give my two cents. This is a very uh, amateurish prediction when it comes to politics. But in times of crises, historically what we have seen is a rallying around the chief executive. And this chief executive will make mistakes as any human being will, but he's the strongest chief executive, in my opinion, we've had in my lifetime. And I think that come November, if we are still anywhere near a crisis stage or there's the possibility of a reversion there too, my sense is people will go for the guy who can get results and not for the person who speaks in an adult fashion and has the policy prescriptions that we've just described that are absolutely lunatic. I, I, I firmly believe that. But at the outset of this program, Nancy, I said, yes, Russiagate couldn't take out Trump. Ukraine and impeachment couldn't take out Trump. Biden or Sanders have no hope of taking out Trump. What will take out Trump, if at all, is coronavirus and or his reaction thereto, if that reaction is not perceived as being sufficient. People will give a chief executive a pass on something as unknown and uncontrollable as a virus if he's taking all prudent measures available to him. And we'll see what the outcome is in November. The question they should ask the other candidates if they're complaining or all those people that are complaining about Trump, say, well, what is your plan for fixing this problem? And then I bet you that shut their mouth up. Um, I don't think anything is going to shut them up, but it's difficult to conceive of what you can do more other than a complete quarantine and, you know, uh, abrogating the testing protocols so you can get a vaccine or some type of a cure online faster than usual, which would be a real problem. We've had issues in the past where 
you know, drugs have been moved through a process a little bit too fast, and then there are negative repercussions as a result of that. So we've got to be careful about how we do this. I have confidence that we've marshaled all of the best professionals to this. That doesn't mean that, you know, there can't be glitches here and there. But I think the best of America is on this issue. I think we'll solve the problem. We hope it's sooner rather than later. In the meantime, stay safe. Take all of the precautions that you're being advised to take. Don't take unnecessary risks, but be Americans. This is Bob. This is not Bob France. If it was Bob France, you'd have a lot more fun. It's P. Kirsten now sitting in for the great Bob France. Bob, thanks very much for the privilege of talking to your audience. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.